We are in Mark chapter 9. We're going to be looking at uh, verses 30 through 42. This is just one of those classic passages where Jesus talks about true greatness. What it is to be the greatest in the kingdom of God is to be the servant. To be the one who serves anyone and everyone, who serves the least of these. And that's really the main idea of the verses that we're looking at today, and that's what you'll see at the top of your notes as the title of the sermon, The Servant of All. And truly that was our Lord Jesus. He served anyone and everyone, and that was His instructions to those who would be called by His name. And that uh, there would always be this inclination within the heart of man to be great. And Jesus said, if you want to know what true greatness is, it is to be the servant of all. So having said that, let's look at chapter 9, verse 30 and following. Then they departed from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know it. For he taught his disciples and said to them, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise the third day. But they did not understand this saying, and they were afraid to ask him. Then he came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What was it you disputed among yourselves on the road? But they kept silent, for on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. And he sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. And then he took a little child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Now John answered him, saying, Teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow us. But Jesus said, Do not forbid him, for no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is on our side. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Verse, uh, verse 42, But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble... It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And we're going to stop right there. Let's pray. Lord, we love you so much and we are grateful for the Word of God. We are so thankful for the Bible and that truly it is a double-edged sword and it does cut, it pierces, and it is alive. And Lord, I pray that you would speak through your living Word today as you are our living Lord. And truly, you are here with us, and we know that. And it's our great joy to worship you. And as we have uh, began the service by singing to you and expressing our dependence upon you and rejoicing over what you have done on our behalf, uh, Lord, now we call out and we ask you to speak to us through the teaching of your word. What a great gift you have given us in the Bible. And it's something that we all need. And many of us in this room know, God, we have been impacted, we have been changed because of it. So I pray that you would speak through your word, that your Holy Spirit would move in this place, and that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So there's been uh, a number of occasions where I have talked about 
the different Gospels seem to communicate something about Jesus. There's four different Gospels, and they kind of um, point to a different aspect of Jesus' character, if you will, right? Does anybody recall us uh, having mentioned this before? What does Matthew seem to communicate about Jesus? He is the, the Messiah, all right, good, he's the king. Jesus is the king of the Jews, he's the Messiah. And what would you say Mark communicates? He is a, hmm? He's a servant. He's a servant. And then Luke communicates that Jesus is, he's a human, he, the humanity of Christ. We see the humanity in Luke. And then lastly, you all should get this, guys. What does John communicate about Jesus? What? He's God. Jesus is God. He is the Son of God. Exactly. So we see He's the King. He's the Servant. He's the Man. He's God. He is the Servant King and the God-Man. And as we put the Gospels together in that way, we really get a more full understanding of Jesus, who He is. And as uh, I said, Mark really highlights that Jesus is a servant. He is the servant of all. And so we want to look at it through that lens. And then as we, we talk about these texts, we understand that more clearly. And Je, uh, Jesus demonstrated that for us. So let's look at verse 30. Then they departed from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know it. Okay, so they were on the Mount of Transfiguration. You'll remember that. Jesus was up there with his inner circle, the three disciples. They came down off the mountain and they encountered the father and his young child who had, um, who had some pretty serious issues and the disciples were not able to do anything about it. He was demon-possessed. You remember, and Jesus said, this kind only comes out through prayer and fasting. And so Pastor Bill just taught on that. And so from that point, they were really high up in Israel. They were in the northernmost part of Israel, up above Caesarea Philippi at the base of Mount Hermon. And so from this point now, they're moving down to, through Galilee, and they're going to end up at Capernaum. It's a little village right on the northernmost part of the Sea of Galilee. So that's, that's where they're going right now. And it said that Jesus didn't want anybody to know about it. And we don't know exactly why that is. I think it would be safe to say Jesus didn't want to be swarmed with people. Um, Jesus is nearing the end of his time here. Uh, from, from this point, as we go into chapter 10... Jesus is going to travel south to Perea. He's making his way closer to uh, Jerusalem. And then from that point there, he launches off into his journey down to Jerusalem where he would ultimately die on the cross. He would give his life uh, for the sins of the world. So we're nearing down to the end of his trip. And Jesus, we know, really spends these last moments uh, with his disciples. Uh, he really starts to turn his attention to them. And it seems that he didn't want to be distracted by that mission. He didn't want to be swarmed by the people. In verse 31, it says, For he taught his disciples and said to them, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and after he is killed, he will rise the third day. Now this is the second time that Jesus has told them this. The last time he said it was just in chapter 8, verse 31. And it's interesting to me, Jesus foretells His death with precision. 
He knows exactly what's going to happen, when it's going to happen, and how it's going to happen. He knew why He came. Jesus knew why He came. He came on mission. Over and over throughout the Gospels, Jesus will say, My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. And then finally He says, My hour is here. The very reason for which I came is here. Jesus came to die. Make no mistake, He was not a victim. This was the Father's plan. It always has been. Jesus came to die for the sins of the world, to die for you and for me, so that we could be forgiven, so that we could know the love of the Father, so that we could be ushered into His glorious church and we could have a relationship with Him here and now and then for all of eternity. Amen? And Jesus came for that purpose. Jesus came to serve us in that way. Uh, Jesus demonstrated the most extreme level of service by giving His very life. Everything about Jesus, He was a servant. And in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, you guys have heard me quote this many times, Jesus said, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And how was He going to do that? By giving His life as a ransom for many. So, uh, within theology, there are the terms um, active obedience and passive obedience. And I don't really like the, the passive obedience. Active obedience is the idea that all of Jesus' life um, was very much a part of the process of Him uh, paying for our sins because He had to be perfectly obedient in all points. Right? If He were sinful, then He would die and He would pay for his own sins and he would not have been raised from the dead and he would have been just like anyone else. But Jesus had to model, he had to live a perfect life. That was his active obedience. And in that he served. He served us. He served his, uh, when I say us, he served his disciples. He, just, he served his family. Uh, he was a servant to all. But then he served through his death. That is what is known as his uh, passive obedience. I don't like that. I don't think there's anything passive about Jesus' death on the cross. But even that was service to us. Jesus truly was a servant. That's what he came to do. Jesus demonstrated the most extreme level of service. And he demonstrated the most extreme level of love. Did he not? No greater love has anyone than this than to lay down his life for his friends. And Jesus did just that. And as I've said before, you know, scarcely would someone die for a righteous man, and yet he may even die for a good man, but we were neither. We were neither righteous or good, and Jesus died for us when we were ungodly. When we were separated from God in our trespass and sin, Jesus served us to the death. Now, do we have any excuse now not to serve? Is there anyone who, uh, who is unqualified to receive our service? Jesus served us to the very death. He served those who were, uh, who were His enemies. That's who Jesus was. That was the reason that He came. And truly, He was a servant. Verse 32 it says, but they did not understand this saying and they were afraid to ask Him. They were still without understanding. So often the disciples didn't get what Jesus was saying. They didn't get it last time. Uh, the Gospel of Matthew gives us a little bit more insight to this and I will uh, reference that from time to time. It says that they were exceedingly sorrowful. 
They didn't understand. They were sorrowful. And it says that they were afraid to ask. Okay, do you remember what happened last time um, Jesus said this? Jesus said these very things in chapter 8. Someone came up to him. They had a problem with that. Do you remember who it was? It was Peter. And he said, far be it from you. This will not happen. And what did Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. You're not mindful of the things of God, but of men. So it would make sense to me why they wouldn't say anything this time. I could understand them just being silent. And um, they didn't ask. Verse 33 says, Then when he came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What is it that you disputed among yourselves on the road? Now Jesus knew what they were talking about. Jesus didn't really need to know this. He knew what they were disputing and He was calling them on it. Verse 34, But they kept silent, for on the road they had disputed among themselves about who would be the greatest. So they were embarrassed. They were embarrassed because they were arguing over who was going to be the greatest and Jesus calls them out on it. And they didn't want to say anything. Now, this isn't the last time that they have this debate, oddly enough. Um, the next time they have this debate, Jesus interrupts them by washing their feet. So the night before Jesus was to be crucified, as you put the Gospels together, you kind of understand they're sitting around the table at the Last Supper and they're still arguing over who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And Jesus doesn't say anything. He just gets up, he wraps himself with a cloth, and he, he goes and he kneels down and begins to wash all of their feet from the greatest to the least. Uh, Jesus takes the place of the lowest servant of the house in that moment. So while they are disputing over who is the greatest, Jesus takes the lowest place and doesn't say anything at all. And you could imagine the, the tension that would have been in that room at that moment. But that's a great picture of uh, the heart of Christ and God's economy and what He esteems as great. Jesus didn't have to say anything. He just knelt down and He began to serve the disciples. Now, as I, I try to consider what, what is this uh, affinity they had for being the greatest? What was this all about? It wasn't too awful long before this point, maybe about 160 years to 190 years before that Israel had been under the yoke of a, of, a, of a very terrible person, Antiochus Epiphany. And he came in and uh, he shut down temple worship. He had the, the priests, actually the, the Israel priests had to drink pig's blood and they erected uh, statues of Zeus in the temple of the Lord. And he hated Judaism, this ruler, Antiochus. And he was a hard... He really um, was hard on the people. So there was a revolt. There were a family of priests that rose up, the Maccabees. And uh, Judas, the hammer, he kind of led this thing. And through guerrilla warfare, they were able to overthrow this army and restore the temple and uh, kind of bring Israel back to glory. And as you would imagine, these guys were esteemed as great. They were esteemed as very great. And so in my mind, I can't help but think that Perhaps that's what the, the disciples were envisioning for themselves. That when Jesus came and He overthrew the yoke and He set things back right and Israel had her place again on the world stage, that the disciples would be hailed as great just like 
the Maccabees were, just like Judas the hammer and, and his brothers and all of their soldiers. But that's not what Jesus was thinking at all. Jesus came for a totally different reason. Now, He will come back. Our Lord will return and He will, he will set things straight. He will come back as a conquering king. Okay? But that's not why He came the first time. He came the first time to deal with the sins of men. To deal with the hearts of men. To set things right between men and God. So this is kind of the picture they have, I think, in their mind of what greatness is. Verse 35. And He sat down, He called the twelve and said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. So notice that <clears throat> Jesus sits down. This is... Uh, this means something. In that, in that day and age, the rabbi, the teacher of the group, he would sit and the disciples would stand as he taught. And so he's kind of taking his place. He's establishing his authority. He's making it clear, I'm getting ready to teach you something and you need to listen up. Jesus is speaking with authority here. And he's going to tell them what true greatness is. He says, guys, you continue to argue about this. You continue to dispute about who is the greatest. Well, I'm going to tell you what greatness truly is. And in God's economy, greatness is very different than how we understand it. You've heard me use that phrase before, God's economy. I remember I worked for a, a Christian man years ago, and I was kind of new to the company, and he looked at me and he said, Rob, I expect more out of my, my Christian employees. He said, I expect you to give me your best. He said, I'm not asking you to be the best, but I'm asking you to give me your best. And in God's economy, that's what counts. That's what God wants. That's the first time I had ever heard that, God's economy. And that really stood out to me. And, and over the years, I have seen more and more how that plays out. That really makes sense. There are certain things that man esteems as great. There are certain things that, that we live for and we strive for, and it's totally contrary to what God esteems as great and as what God esteems as important. And so Jesus says we're to take the lowest place. The Bible says that we're to esteem others as greater than ourselves. The Bible says that we humble ourselves and let God exalt us in due time. The Bible says that we don't try to save our lives. We don't do everything within our power to, to save up and have security, to have comfort, to have status and position. No, we give that away. We give away our lives to the service of others and to the service of the Lord and we trust that He will exalt us in due time and He will take care of us. He will provide for us. We don't show partiality to the great. We serve and love people who cannot repay us. That's contrary to the world. And that's God's economy. And that's what Jesus tried to communicate. That's true greatness in God's eyes, uh, we we are we're not strangers to uh, athletes and and musicians and and movie stars and and you fill in the blank and and what they portray as greatness and uh, they're here. I don't know if you guys uh, know anything about CrossFit. Is that anybody heard of it? Okay. Well, they have the games. At, that's kind of like at the end of the year, all the best of the best and the the champions come forward and. 
and uh, they compete. And then finally, when the, the person wins, they have this moment where the cameras just pan all the way around the stadium, but it's looking at the champion. And so you can see all the crowds behind him cheering, and you can see his face, and it's just spinning around, and he's having his moment of glory. And that is glory in the, in the eyes of man. That is something that so many people, they long for that. They live for that. They'll give anything for that. That's glory. That's what is great. But not in God's kingdom. Greatness is serving others. You know, in Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23 and, and 24, I want to paraphrase this a little bit. God says, don't glory in riches. Don't glory in power. Don't glory in fame. If you want to glory in something, if you want to boast about something, boast that you know the Lord. Boast that you know me. That's something to glory in. Amen? And then Joshua chapter 1, verse 8, Joshua is told, this word, this book that has been given to you, the book of the law, know it, study it, meditate on it, obey it, and that you will have success. That's success, guys. You want to glory in something? Glory in the fact that you know the Lord. You want success? Know His Word. Meditate on it. Obey it. You want greatness? Give your life away and serve the least of these. That is true greatness. That is greatness according to our Lord. Verse 36. Then He took a little child and set him in the midst of them. And when He had taken him in His arms, He said to them, Whoever receives one of these little children in My name receives Me. And whoever receives Me receives not Me, but Him who sent Me. So this is significant because children were often marginalized in ancient cultures. They were at times considered of really no value at all. And still to this day in many cultures it's that way, but particularly here, they could uh, even what they call disposing of, of the children, just get rid of them. They would just, uh, if, if a baby was born and say it was a girl, uh, the dad had the right to say, you know, just kill the baby, you know, I don't want it, or, or whatever the case may be. That was kind of the value that was placed on children in that day and age. So for Jesus to take a child and to embrace him and say, you have to become like this child, you have to receive this child, that was... Revolutionary. You'll remember at one point um, the disciples had actually rebuked some people for bringing their kids to Jesus so that Jesus would lay his hands on them and bless them. And they, uh, the disciples were like, get these kids out of here. You know, he's got more important things to do. And Jesus said, don't hinder the little ones from coming to me, for such are the kingdom of God. So this was revolutionary that, that Jesus would do that. And the idea here is that we want to care for the lowly, the often unnoticed people, those with very little status in this world. Those are the ones to whom we serve. Those are the ones that we give our time to. Jesus said, blessed are those who bless and serve people who can't give back. That's kind of the idea. In Luke chapter 14, verses 13 and 14, Jesus is giving a parable. And He says, when you have a feast... Invite the, the maimed, the lame, the, the blind, the deaf, the people that cannot bless you back, and you'll have rewards in heaven. 
And don't just do for the people that can turn around and, and do it for you, and, and it's reciprocal. Serve and bless those who can't bless you back. That's what really counts in the eyes of God. In James chapter 1, it says that pure and undefiled religion is this, that we care for the orphans and the widows. That's true religion. That's religion in its purest sense. Um, and that's what is important to God. And he says that uh, whoever we receive in his name. Have you, have you ever wondered why we say in Jesus' name when we pray? And at the end, we, we put that on there in Jesus' name. Have you ever wondered what that means? Well, it's basically like saying by the authority or in the authority of, for instance, a police officer. When they go to arrest somebody, well, I'll just use Aaron Mosley, for example. We all know Aaron. Now, what gives him the right? He's just a guy like me or you. He's just a human. What would give him the right to stop someone, jam them up? That's his language. I used to love to hear him say that, jam that person up, and then possibly even arrest them. Did, did he have that authority? It was the... The law, it was the law that gave him that authority. The badge that he wore gave him that authority. So uh, when we pray, that's why, Lord, not, I don't deserve it. I don't have any worth. I've not done anything good to deserve this. But in Jesus' name, under his authority, I ask, Lord, that you would act, that you would fill in the blank. So you, you get the idea. And so we also represent Jesus in that way. When we serve people, love people, embrace people, and we come in Jesus' name, we come in His authority, we come as His representative. And Jesus says that when you receive one of these little ones, you receive Me. And not only do you receive Me, but you receive Him who sent Me. Don't miss this, guys. That's really significant to me. There is, uh, when, when we serve the least of these, when we love the outcast, when we sacrifice and we serve and we give our lives away, what do we receive? What do we receive? We receive Jesus. And not only do we receive Jesus, we receive the Father, the one who sent Jesus. You want to you feel dry? You feel like you're going through a dry spell? You ever felt like the Lord was far away? You ever felt like there was no uh no power, no intimacy? You ever felt that? Maybe you should try Try serving. Try giving your life away. Try putting yourself in a position where as you give yourself away, as you embrace these people, whoever it may be, that you'll receive the Lord. There's communion in this. You understand? Uh, you want to experience the Lord? Get out there and serve. Get out there where the hurt is. Get out there where the pain is. Get out there where, uh, where people are truly desperate. Put yourself out there. Matthew adds to this and says that we must become like a child. So not only do we, we receive a child, we have to become like a child. What does that mean? That is to say, uh, childlike faith. So often children, not always, uh, we know, they don't always just listen, right, do they? But generally, um, if you put a kid up on some kind of high and say jump, they're just going to jump and trust you to catch them. You know, they'll just go for it because they, they trust their parents. It's just like that. And uh, so they're also dependent. What would your children do without you? Where would they go? How would they take care of them? They're absolutely dependent upon you. And that's why uh, it says that we also have to receive the kingdom 
like a child. We have to have childlike faith and childlike dependence. Okay, verse 38. Now John answered him, saying, Teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow us. Now I always thought this was kind of random, like there was a real disconnect between the verses before this, and now John kind of comes out of nowhere with this. But as I study through this, I think there actually is a connection, and I, I would suggest to you that this may be more of a question, uh, since Jesus just said, let me read that again, in verse um, 36, Then he took a little child and set him in the midst of them, and when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, uh, whoever receives one of these children in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So I think it's connected to this, my name. Now John answers and said, Teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name. And we told him to stop because he's not of our circle. He's not in our circle, but he was doing something in your name. Should we not have done that? So you're saying that there's a blessing for doing something in your name and we saw someone doing something in your name and we stopped them because they weren't in our circle. Should we not have done that? Verse 39, Jesus said, Don't forbid them, for no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterwards speak evil of me. So Jesus said, No, you should not forbid people from serving or, or doing some miracle in my name. And he starts by just using logic. He says, Anyone who... Uh, does a miracle in my name, can't soon afterwards speak evil of me. That makes sense, right? We get that. Then verse 40, Jesus says, For he who is not against us is on our side. And so he goes a little further with it. One, they can't speak evil against me if they're doing something in my name. But secondly, if they're not against us, they're, they're for us. And that's a, that's a good thing. And, and from that I would say... Either you are for or against Jesus, but there is no neutral ground with Jesus. He doesn't see it. There, there is no such thing as, as neutral. Now, you may be here and you may be seeking. You may be here because you're interested and you want to know and you haven't really made your mind up. I wouldn't say that's neutral. You're here intentionally. You want to know. You want to understand. And there are some who are here, and I don't, even, I don't know why you're here, but you don't believe this stuff at all. And I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're, we're glad you're here. Maybe you don't believe this, but you know what? It's true, and the Lord loves you, and He's calling you, and it's no coincidence that you're here, okay? But then there are people who are here who are excited to be here. You know why you're here. You love the Lord. You've come to worship Him with the church, and you have come to hear His Word. But then there are some people who think, well... Take it or leave it. I don't know. I'm not going to say it doesn't. It's not true. I'm not going to say it is true, but I'm just kind of coasting along. You can't do that. Either you're for Jesus or you're against Jesus. Do you understand? And so Jesus is making that clear. He cannot stand lukewarm. We know that, right? Jesus said, I'd rather you be hot or cold, but don't be in the middle. Okay? One or the other. And obviously being on fire for the Lord is the greatest. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 30, Jesus says, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. So these are Jesus' words. So don't stay neutral. 
And I would encourage you guys, if you're in that place, today is the day. Embrace the Lord. Repent. Give yourself to Jesus Christ. Follow Him. Serve Him. And enter into true greatness as you become a follower of Jesus, a servant of the Lord, and a servant of others. Verse 41, For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in My name because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Did you know there's a reward for serving Christ? That's amazing. You know, when I came to, when I came to the Lord and I was excited about God and I was walking in the newness of life and there was no more condemnation on my life, I was free. I was free from the fear of death and the fear of hell. And I was alive to Christ, walking in the newness of life, rejoicing that God now dances over me in joy. Um, I don't need a reward for serving the Lord. I just want to serve Him. I just wanted to give the rest of my life to the service of God. I had wasted so much time and I had done so much bad and hurt, I wanted to spend the rest of my days serving and doing good and blessing and loving others and, and giving my life to God. It's amazing to me that, and that's right, that's what we should do. But what's amazing to me is that on top of that, there is a reward for serving the Lord. Is that amazing? Does that amaze you? There is a reward for something as simple as giving a cup of cold water. When's the last time you just gave somebody a cup of cold water? I think we tend to think that when it comes to serving people, we have to do big things. It has to really count. It has to be huge. And guess what? Because we don't do that or can't do that, what do we do instead? Nothing at all. Nothing at all. Don't fall into that trap. We're called to be servants in the home, at, at our workplace. Uh, wherever the Lord has put you, you're a servant. I remember I was working at a, at a welding factory, and, uh, you know, I don't know, you probably don't know, but amongst welders, those are usually some of the roughest and, and toughest kind of guys and, and crowds. And so uh, I loved that season of life, being amongst those guys. And uh, my, my boss came up to me and said, I, would you please do this? It wasn't part of my normal task. And I said, look, I'm here to serve. I'm here to serve. And I knew that that stood out as odd to my coworkers, but I want to set that example. I'm not just here to get a check. I'm here to serve. You understand? And so wherever you are at, you're called to be a servant, no matter what it is or to who it is. And there's a reward for that. But especially if you do this for a Christian, because notice here he says, because you belong to Christ, whoever gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. There's something special about serving God's people. Galatians talks about that. And Jesus really identifies with His people. Guys, I, I don't miss this. You remember when Saul was on the road to Damascus and he, was, um, he had been persecuting the church and he was struck down by a light? And it said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting who? Me. Well, who had Saul been persecuting? The Christians. But Jesus said, you're persecuting me. You're persecuting me. And then in Matthew chapter 25, 
Jesus tells the story, the parable about when the, the sheep and the goats, they're going to be separated in the end. And then the king will say to the one side, he'll say, when I was hungry, you gave me food. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was in jail, you came and you visited me. And they said, Lord, when, when did we clothe you? When did we feed you? When did we visit you? And he said, when you did this to the least of one of these, my brethren, you did it for me. And I would, usually that text is um, applied to just kind of anybody. You know, whenever we do this, generally speaking, we're doing it for Jesus. But I really believe that's speaking of Christians. Because Jesus was talking of a day when the church would really be persecuted. And to call upon the name of Christ, you would lose everything. You would lose your family, you would lose your livelihood, and you would really likely end up in jail. And so when you feed a Christian, when you clothe a Christian, when you visit a Christian who's in jail, you're doing it for Jesus. And so Jesus really identifies with His people. You understand that. And so there's a special blessing for serving those within the church too. And serving our missionaries that are, that are uh, around the world trying to support them and be a blessing to them. And other churches in Napa. So we want to serve anyone and everyone. We want to serve the people who can't give back. We want to serve the homeless folks here in Napa. We want to serve the children. We want to serve people within the church. We want to be servants of all. That is what, that's greatness according to the Lord. Amen? Verse 42, and we'll close with this. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. So just as there is a reward for serving and blessing one of Jesus' little ones, there's also a consequence, a severe consequence to anyone who should stumble one of these. Little ones, and that is to cause someone to turn away from Jesus or to fall into immorality. So there is a, a blessing for being a blessing, and there's a cursing for being a cursing. Millstones, I'm sure we've all heard this, but they were used. Um, in fact, I saw a documentary just the other day. There was a lady, she's a, a marathon runner in the mountains of Nepal. And her and her mom were grinding at a little millstone. It was about this big around, and there would be uh, one on each side, and it had two handles and a hole that they would pour grain down in and just spin the thing around. And as it would spin, it would crush the grain. So that's a small one. And then there would be a massive millstone for mass production that a, a donkey or a beast of burden would actually have to move. That's the, the stone that is envisioned here. Jesus said it would be better for you if you had one of those tied around your neck and thrown off into the sea than to stumble one of these little ones. That's serious language. And uh, as I understand it, I didn't know this. I was reading a commentary the other day. They said that was actually a form of capital punishment among the Gentiles. Very repulsive to the Jews. And it would have been just, it would have created that within them when they hear that kind of language. And so this is what Jesus this is the kind of value Jesus plays, places on service. Serving and loving anyone and everyone, the least of these, particularly uh, his little ones, his, his believers. That's why I put such a huge emphasis on the children's ministry over there. That is not just glorified babysitting. Okay, we are loving Jesus' little ones. And it's important. It's such an important extension of, of Cornerstone, of our ministry. 
But then conversely, there is a severe warning for anyone who would want to stumble one of his, his little ones. And that is not just children, but, but new believers in Christ. So I just want to bring it back to we are servants of the Lord. That's what we are here for. Just like Jesus was on a mission, Jesus knew why He came, so are we. We're not just here to suck air and pass time. We're not just taking up space. We didn't just get saved, so now we can go to heaven. Jesus left us here to serve. Are we serving? Are you serving? I know what my life looks like. I know where God has called me to serve. I know how He has called me to serve. But what does that look like for you? Are you serving in your home, in the church, in the community, in the workplace, in your neighborhood? Fill in the blank. Are you? Because Jesus says that's true greatness. I don't want you guys to be distracted with what Napa says greatness is. I don't want you to spend all your life, all your time, all your energy, all your resources pursuing fake, false greatness when the Lord has made clear what true greatness is. And it's in being a servant to all. Let's close on that. Lord, we love You so much and we worship You because You served us to the death. Lord, You, having loved Your own who are in the world, You loved them to the very end. You loved them with a complete and total unfailing love. And You have loved us the same. And You have served us well and You have taught us that true greatness is giving our lives away in service to others. And that is so hard to do, God. We get so easily distracted. And uh, Lord, help us to see through the fog and to understand that it's all about serving You and serving others, God. I pray that You would show us, Lord, each and every one of us in here, what that means for us and, and what that looks like. Help us to get in the game, God. Help us to humble ourselves and take this so seriously that we would really believe that true greatness is in serving, serving the least of these. And so we love You, Lord. We thank You for the cross. We thank You that You served us that way. And now we may, may we, Lord, give our lives to You, God, for Your service. In Jesus' name, amen.